you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46. We're in Isaiah 46 today, and hopefully we'll get into Isaiah 47 as we continue our march through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 46 is about idols. God, through the prophet Isaiah, seems to just keep talking to us about idols. And to be honest with you, I actually thought about moving on, pressing ahead in the book. We've talked about idols a good bit, you know, what comes next. But Isaiah 47 is related to 46. And and I never really got a piece about moving on. So if you were thinking, oh no, idols again, well yeah, I was thinking that too. And, uh, but it came to me, it occurred to me this week that if God through Isaiah lingers over the problem of idols, then perhaps we should too. We should take the time to do so as well. You see, what I've learned this week as I've looked, it seems to me that God doesn't really want us to move on until we see that idols are such a huge part of our everyday lives that a lot of times we don't even see them. We don't even realize the effects that they can have on us. We're influenced in ways we don't realize. We have problems we can't overcome because we don't see what their real cause is. We don't get down to the the root in our repentance, which a lot of times stems from our idols. We'll talk about that some this morning. But God, through Isaiah, wants us to see our problem with idols so that we can turn from those things and turn back to him. So my prayer this morning It's just been that God would speak to us through his word. I'll read a few verses, and then we'll talk about it a little bit together. And I just want God to speak to us and to do his work in our hearts. So let me read Isaiah 46. I'll begin with verses 1 through 4 and then pray for us, and we will dig in and walk through this together. Let's pray. Let me read, then we'll pray together. Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's word. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. Things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please forgive our fickle hearts that long to move on to other topics, to be entertained with new and exciting ideas. I pray that you would do your work in us now, that you would show us our idols, that you would show us the things that we look to and trust in besides you, and that you would enable us to turn from those things and find the life and the joy and the peace and the victory over sin that only you can give to us. So please come by your spirit and use the preaching of your word to do that in the lives of your people, even now, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we come to Isaiah 46 and we read, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, the first question's got to be, who is Bell? Who is Nebo? 
Is this like talking about Beauty and the Beast, Bell? Is that a, no, it's spelled differently, right? That's not who Bell and Nebo are. Bell and Nebo are two of the chief gods of Babylon. They are Babylonian idols. And the reference here in the text, the history behind this, what God's people would see when they were in exile in Babylon is this. Every year, as a part of the New Year festival, these Babylonian idols would be carried through the city in a grand procession during this New Year festival in hopes that they would give the people good fortune in this new year that was to come. And then after the New Year's parades, as we may think of them, are over, then these idols were laid down. You see the reference to them stooping down or bowing down. They're laid down and put on wagons. They're, they're drugged by beasts of burdens back to where they are stored away until the next year. So you see the reference to they themselves going into captivity. And so that's what God's people were to see in Babylon. And so it seems that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is calling his people to ask. He's calling us to ask this question. If a so-called God needs to be carried around, then how can that God carry you? If a so-called God needs your help, then how can that God help you? If a so-called God needs your strength, then how does that God strengthen you? It's what God, through Isaiah, is calling his people to contemplate. And that's why in verses 3 and 4, that he says, Listen to me, people of God. You have been born by me before you were... I have carried you from the womb. Even to your old age, God says, I am he who will carry you. Even when you are old and gray and you have gray hair, he says, I have made you. I will bear you up. I will carry you. I will save you is the promise of our God to his people. Our God has carried us, we may say, from the womb, and he will carry us to our tomb. From cradle to grave, there is not one moment when our God is not carrying us. There will never be a time, as long as we are upright, that God is not holding us up and not carrying us. Our next breath, our next thought is made available because God sustains us and carries us and bears us up. And there's never a day that will come. When God will get too old and frail, that like a, a parent, like we have to help him along because he's not, it's not that, when we get old, God still carries us at that time. So every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, God is the one who carries and sustains his people. Great, thank you for that theological truth. Most of us probably arrived today thinking that. What difference does that make in my life? How do I live differently as a result of it? Well, I've got a couple of thoughts about that. First of all, the thought might lead us to some humility, right? We, we might be a little more humble about ourselves when we realize that God is the one who sustains us. We know these theological truths, but a lot of times in the quietness we kind of think we've done a lot of this stuff 
I think I'm pretty smart. I think I'm pretty clever. I think I've accomplished some things. I think I've gotten some things done. And we don't recognize that God is the one who holds us up from beginning to the end, that he's the one who carries us. I heard a preacher say one time, you know, we could have been born blind in the 14th century in Mongolia. You probably wouldn't be able to accomplish all the things you accomplish now. We are so dependent on our God. And that's okay. With our own children, we often work toward their independence. We've been thinking about this a lot in our house recently, is our children more and more becoming independent. And that's the goal. That's what you want to do, right? That they are people who glorify and honor God on their own, separate from you, without your help. But, but you do realize that with our Heavenly Father, that is not the way things work. We are not working towards our independence. We are dependent on God. We will always be dependent on Him. And as His children, He wants us to be dependent on Him. In fact, maturity and growing in the Christian life looks more like depending more and more and acknowledging our dependence on God. And less and less do we try to do things independently from Him. So I call you today. Believe the promises of God that he will help you persevere to the end. Psalm 68 verse 19 says, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears us up. This humility should lead to great praise and thankfulness towards our God who is so gracious to us. And you may be thinking to yourself, yes, I, I, I do. I realize God carries me. I do that. But day to day, if we're honest with ourselves, we do look to other things to carry us. It may not be Bell or Nebo, but there are other things we look to to get us through, to carry us, to sustain us. What would some of those things be for you? I've really been praying this week that God would be at work in your heart, helping us, helping us to see what some of those things are. For, for some of us, what we look to to really carry us and to get us through and sustain us is the approval of people. We think, I'm okay, life is good, I can make it as long as I have the approval of people or certain people. As long as I have their approval, then I'll be okay. And we can make an idol of the approval of people. For some of us, we don't need the approval of people. In fact, we were kind of proud that we don't need people's approval, right? And so for us, it's not approval we want, but, but we demand respect, right? That I'm okay, life is good, I can make it, I can get by as long as you respect me. You may not like me, but you're going to respect me. Sometimes we make an idol out of respect. For some of us, it's our own comfort, Life is okay, life is good, I can get through, I can make it. What carries me along is as long as I have a certain kind of pleasure, as long as I have a certain type of experience, as long as I have a certain quality of life, then everything will be okay and I can make it because we've made an idol of our comfort or our experiences. Some of us are proud that we don't get caught up in comfort. For us, what's important is productivity, 
I'm okay. Life is good. I can get through because I get things done. I can check things off the list. I can churn out the work. And for some of us, we can make productivity an idol. Let me mention one more that Dakota mentioned in his offertory prayer. For some of us, our politics or our social causes can be an idol for us. That what carries us, we, we say, I'm okay, life is good, I can make it, I can keep going as long as my political party or my social cause is making progress or is ascending in power and in influence. What is it for you? What do you look to other than God that as long as you have that, life will be okay? It carries you. It's what gets you through. What is that for you? It's important that we identify what that is so that we can confess it as an idol and turn from it. And God calls us to name those things and compare them to him. Look at verse 5. Let's keep going in the text. God speaking to his people says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? God calls us to this comparison, right? And we do compare all the time, don't we? We just don't compare rightly. We make the wrong choices. We think in our hearts, what is the comfort of God to me compared with the comfort, comfort of internet pornography? Come to the, compared to the comfort of, of drugs or of alcohol, and we choose this other comfort that seems more close and more real to us than the comfort that God alone can give. For some of us, we make that comparison. We say, so what if, if Jesus died for me on the cross and he has paid for my sins, but I don't have a date on Friday, that I don't have the date that I want, that I don't have the spouse that I want, and we compare those things, and Jesus' work on the cross is not enough for us because we've made an idol that we pursue. For some of us, we compare what is the glory of God worth and pursuing his glory if it comes at the expense of my success. And we compare the surpassing glory of God and his worth compared to our succeeding, and we choose to cut corners on the glory of God. We choose to sacrifice the glory of God for our own success so that we can get ahead. We need to think about these questions. We need to dwell on the importance of the good gifts that God is for us and who God is until, as we compare, the Creator becomes greater for us than these created things that we think we need to be happy. I wonder... What is it that you think that you need in order to be happy today? I want to encourage you right now really to think about this. I know we think, okay, well, I'll do that later, and then we get busy. We never do it. We're here now. Let's just think about it right now. Think about it. Ask yourself, what do I really want and expect out of life? What is it that I really believe could really make me happy? Or if you are happy right now, then ask yourself this question. What is it that makes me happy? What is it that gives me self-worth? What is it that, that makes me feel good at this time? What is it that I'm most proud of? The answers to these kinds of questions can lead us to what we trust in or what we actually look to besides the living God. 
Our emotions can be really good guides in this process because our emotions reflect what is in our hearts. So I would encourage you, when you are angry, ask yourself, is there something that is too important to me? Something that I'm telling myself that I have to have in order to be happy? Is that why I'm angry? Because I'm being blocked from having this thing that I have to have in order to be happy. You see, there are so many people who will confess to me, I struggle with anger, I have a problem with anger, and they memorize scripture about anger, and they really just try to work on the anger. And even if they're successful, they don't outburst with their anger, but it's still seething within. And folks wonder why they don't have victory over their sin and and how they anger, how they sin in their anger. But the reason is, is because your main problem is not your anger. Your real problem is your idolatry. And what you think you have to have to be happy is being blocked from you. And that's what causes your anger. Yes, you need to confess and repent. You need to confess your idol. And confess that you you don't need that thing to be happy. That God alone is enough. Men. We tend to be angry. We don't get sad because it's not okay to be sad or depressed. We just get angry. What, what is it that really provokes you to anger? If you're really brave, ask somebody close to that you live with and ask them to be gentle. That could be an indication what your idol is. When our job is affected in some way, we get angry. When our schedule is disrupted. Sex and sexuality, those things can anger us. Perhaps those things are idols. But it's not just anger. When you're afraid, when you're worried, ask yourself, is there something too important to me? Something that I'm telling myself that I have to have. Is that why I'm afraid? Because something is being threatened that I think I have to have to be happy. What is it for you? You can ask the same question with depression. With being distressed, you can ask yourself, is there something too important to me? Something that I'm telling myself I have to have? Is that why I'm so down? Is it because I've lost something or I've failed at something that I think I have to achieve in order to be happy? Perhaps those things are idols for us. What would those things be for you? And let me just say... The answer is not always a bad thing. It's not always something that's bad or corrupting like drugs or alcohol or internet pornography. Sometimes it's a really, really good thing that we value. But the mistake is we value it more than God. God shows us that in the text. Look at verses 6 and 7. God's still talking, and he says, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it up on their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. What's God saying there? He says people take valuable things like gold and like silver Gold and silver are good things. They're beautiful things. They're valuable things. They are good gifts from God. And many times idols can be good things that we make into God things. They're things that we give the ultimate place in our lives or in our hearts. And we take these good gifts that God has given us for our enjoyment, like family or like work or like productivity, and then we elevate those things above God. 
Sometimes our idols are things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but they're wrong in the way we perceive them. They're wrong in the way that we feel about them. Of course, it's not something we do in our conscious thoughts. It's not a formal conscious commitment that we make, but in our functional emotional commitments. That's why our emotions can show us sometimes what our idols are. But in our emotional, functional commitments, we exchange the glory of the Creator for a created thing. We settle for less because the gift seems more real or more rewarding in the moment than the God who gave us the gift. That's idolatry. It's not a problem with our stuff. It's not a problem with our God. It's not a problem with our job. It's not a problem with our anger. Sometimes anger is good. It's a problem with our hearts. Ezekiel 20 and verse 16, the prophet Ezekiel said, Their heart went after their idols. What's your heart after today? Whatever it is your heart goes after, that is your functional God. That's what you've made into an idol. So ask yourself. There are ways to figure out what that is. Ask yourself, what is it that I think about most easily? Where does your mind go when you don't have to think about anything at all, right? When you're in the shower, when you're sitting at a red light, when you're going to sleep at night, where does your mind just naturally go? What preoccupies your thoughts? What is easy for you to think about? Sometimes that can be an indication of what your heart is going after. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit our heart goes after other things than the one true God. Look what God says about that. Verses 8 to the end of the chapter. God's still speaking, and he says this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of counsel from a far country, which is a reference to Cyrus the Persian, who will overthrow the Babylonians, which is the history that's going on behind this. And God continues, and he says, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is striking to me. It is so interesting that after God has assured his people that he's going to carry them, that he's going to bear with them from the cradle to the grave, that he was, he was holding them up and sustaining them in the womb before they were born, and that now he agrees to carry them even into old age, that he's made them, he will bear them, he will carry with them, he will save them. Yet, in verse 8, how does he refer to his people? Transgressors. This group of people that he is carrying along so faithfully, in verse 12 he calls them, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. 
Is that not striking to you that this group of people he's expressed his love for than he describes in these ways? Why would God do that? Because we're transgressors and we're stubborn in our heart because we're far from righteousness. That's why he says it, because it is true. It is a true description of us because we choose other things over him. But also realize this truth. It means that God carries us not because we are so faithful to him, but God carries us because he is so faithful to us. Amen. Thank you, Lord. God carries us and cares for us, not because we're so good, but because he is so good to his people who do not deserve it. God carries us. He gives us his righteousness. He gives salvation to a people who do not deserve it. He says twice here, salvation won't delay, that he will put his salvation in Zion for Israel, for his people, and he'll do it for his glory. He mentions salvation twice there in verse 13. What is it that he saves us from? He saves us from the judgment of God, from his judgment. Keep reading. Chapter 47, verse 1. God pronounces judgment on those who chase after other things besides him. God says, come down and, and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. God says for those who turn away from him that his judgment is coming. And specifically, he says his judgment is coming on Babylon. Now, I want you to think about that with me. Because first, yes, he is talking about that group of people who conquered Israel and carried them off into exile. God is saying, I'm going to judge that group of people because they've been ruthless to my people. And he makes that clear if you keep reading in verses 5 through 7. Yes, he is talking about that group of people. But if you're a student of the Bible, you will recall that Babylon is a symbol, it's a picture of, for a world who seeks other things above the true God. If you read in Revelation chapter 18, the very final judgment is called the fall of Babylon. And it's called that not in reference to these people because Cyrus will have come and ransacked them centuries before the Apostle John writes Revelation 18. This reference to Babylon, especially in Revelation 18, it's a, it's a reference to God's judgment on a world that has put other things above him. And that's a problem for us because we have all done that. We all deserve God's judgment. And God, as a just God, will not let these wrongs go unpunished. We love the idea of justice, that God's going to make all things right. We love that idea when we're thinking about all the people out there. But we ought to be careful with our idea of justice. Because justice without mercy, justice without grace, 
Justice without forgiveness means that we are in trouble because we deserve justice from a holy God. But God is so good. In verses 12 and 13, we saw where these people who are stubborn of heart, who are far from righteousness, what did he say in verse 13? That he brings his righteousness to us, a righteousness that is not far off, that he brings salvation to transgressors, to those who are stubborn in their hearts. That God is willing to do that. You see, if you keep reading in Isaiah, and you keep reading the Bible into the New Testament, we see that God's judgment will fall either personally on us in the future or it has fallen substitutionally on Jesus crucified in the past as a punishment for our sin. We've sung about it this morning already, that our only hope is in Christ alone. And until that final day of judgment, God is offering his righteousness. He's offering his salvation to every one of us. But please do not forget where the real battle is. I want you to see this clearly. I'm coming, I know I've already said it once. I'm going to come back and say it again. Why is he repeating himself? Because the text repeats it. Okay. I want you to remember where the battle is. God comes back to this in, in, in 47, uh, verse 8 and verse 10. Listen to what God says. He says, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Or look at verse 10. God says, You felt secure in your wickedness. You said no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge has led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am. And there is no one besides me. Oh, please don't forget where the battle is. We can get so focused on all the wrong out there. We can get so focused on even the outward things that are wrong, like our anger. But the real battle is in our hearts. For the original audience, the fall of Babylon began not when Cyrus showed up with his, with his armies, but when the Babylonians said something in their hearts, and God hears the thoughts of our hearts. And the same is true for us. The biggest battle is not out there. The biggest battle is in here, in our hearts. When we make ourselves the center instead of God, we want what we want. And the most important thing to us is what we want instead of what God wants. And we have all done that. And we all deserve his vengeance. But hear the good news this morning. God takes stubborn transgressors, those who are far from righteousness, and he takes away our unrighteousness. He gives us his righteousness. It is not far from us. And he saves us. So I call you, turn to him. Take some time to really think about what it is your heart goes after so that you can confess those things. And so you can turn from them and set your heart on the living God. Then as we continue to live life, as your fickle heart drifts away, keep turning back to him. Become quicker to, 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 to realize it when you look to other things to carry you other than the living God. Compare other things to him. He is God. 
There is no other, and nothing our hearts can desire compares with him. Let's pray and ask him to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you dwell on things we need to deal with. Thank you that you don't let us go on to other things, but that you keep bringing us back to your faithfulness, to your goodness to your people, to your grace, to your mercy that is available for transgressors like us, to those whose hearts are stubborn, to those who are far away from your righteousness. We thank you that you bring your righteousness near that Christ is our righteousness, and that our salvation has been offered to us in the person and work of your Son. We thank you and we praise you. Help us to turn from other things and trust in him. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. The love of God is greater for us.